Hello and welcome to the Sydney Ideas Podcast, To The Point. We take a short and focused look at an issue. I'm Anna Burns, the Public Programs Manager at the University of Sydney. Today we're talking about language and cognition and how it relates to COVID-19. Language is how we process information and pass it on to each other. So it's important to understand how it works, particularly in this context. The way we talk about the disease and the time we're living in can be helpful or harmful. It could be comforting or confusing. When we say, for example, symptoms are mild, what does that really mean? Or by using the hashtag stay at home on social media, what message does that send? Does anything get lost in translation? To help us make more sense of this is Nick Enfield. Nick is a professor of linguistics here at the University of Sydney, and he studies language in a variety of contexts. When we're in a situation like this, we really want information. We want to know what is this disease? What are the risks? How might we get it? What would happen if we did get it? What's happening elsewhere in the world? So we're very hungry for information, and we go to very many different sources because of you know social media provides this incredible diversity of sources it's quite hard to kind of calibrate um, and adjust to the different contexts and you mentioned the word mild this is an interesting example i find because at a certain point um you know we've reported that most cases of COVID 19 are mild uh and this was you know in the context of people trying to reassure people or perhaps to minimize you know the risk uh, and saying well it's you know it's like having uh you know the flu most cases are mild and it was pointed out uh to me and also by people um you know online is by experts in medical context saying wait a second when people say mild um you know everyday people who are not medical who are not speaking technically well you know a, a mild illness is like well probably we can still go to work and we can still give a lecture or you know whatever it is that we do um even though we might feel a bit off but in technical terms with respect to this particular case so this this was uh you know reports coming out of china in the earlier phase mild cases were essentially cases where the person was not yet in fully intensive care so um you know you could still be hospitalized and technically have a mild case so um you know this means that people who are reading that particular use of the term mild if they're being reassured by that then you know that's a that's a bit of false reassurance and it's one of the examples that i think highlights the need to be mindful about the words that we're reading and about particularly about our own interpretation of those words and it's to just you know i think the key thing is to sort of suspend one's initial judgment whether that judgment is to be alarmed or whether that judgment is to be relieved and just sort of take a step back and think okay well that's my first gut reaction but let's get other sources of information let's calibrate that against other things we might um learn and sort of build up a more nuanced understanding so another example would be things like um you know so-called extreme measures that uh we might be under due to government recommendations to to practice social distancing if you like so um my colleague adam camrad scott suggested on twitter well hang on a second you know let's not call these extreme measures they're not extreme you know extreme implies uh you know for example that there's a terrible totalitarian uh, state affecting and i'm still seeing these kinds of comments uh online where people are saying this is extreme and 
you know, it's a police state and all this kind of thing. Um, and, and someone might say, well, no, actually, it's exactly what's called for, for medical reasons and for, um, you know, for practical reasons, and it's the only kind of solution. So let's not call them extreme because they're appropriate. Um, in terms of language, um, that's the, exactly the kind of word, you know, words like mild and extreme, you know, they, they're kind of nicely at opposite ends of a spectrum. Um, you know, for one person, one person might use that word uh, in, a, in one sense and one person might use it in, a, in another sense entirely. And it's very easy when it's taken out of context to get the wrong impression. So kind of calibration and being more, more mindful and, and taking a step-by-step uh, approach to understanding words in context is crucial. Okay, on that, thinking about how language provokes, I guess, uh, reactions, there's something here about assigning blame. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, blame, I think, is also extremely interesting. There's a lot of discourse around that and, and sort of at the highest level we see, you know, what what many would call conspiracy theories about the ultimate origin of the of the virus. I mean, the virus is a product of biological evolution, we now know, um, but the context of that evolution is, you know, one where people have looked at it and sort of tried to find blames. And now just because those conditions uh, pertained in a particular place in China, now we see this, you know, huge, uh, very politicised kind of campaign saying, uh, you know, this is the Chinese virus and it's been produced, uh, you know, by China and, and uh, you know, it's a kind of state-level conspiracy. Those, those are the things you see. And correspondingly, we're seeing exactly the same thing going the other direction. And there are also online uh, campaigns to assign blame to uh, the United States. So that's at sort of a very high level that people are out there spreading kind of uh, claims, misinformation, disinformation, uh, to try to, you know, uh, get get this this whole narrative to align with particular political aims. That's that's a kind of high level thing. And then at a very low level, when I say low level, I mean you know the level of individual sort of social life rather than the level of uh, state agents relating to each other. Um, we have you know questions around who's to blame for the problem of the virus spreading or continuing to spread within uh, particular communities. So we're seeing that right now uh, in Australia. So when I say right now, it's the uh, very end of March. So at, at the beginning of March, the World Health Organization uh, tweeted some advice saying, you know, which is really advice about appropriate language in relation to talking about coronavirus. So they tweeted, do talk about people acquiring or contracting COVID-19. Don't talk about people transmitting, infecting, spreading, as it implies intentional transmission and assigns blame. So this was very interesting. Uh, you know, some people reacted to this as a, as a kind of a mad example of political correctness. I, I'm not really quite sure what was behind the uh, announcement in terms of what, you know, what its real motivation was, what its stated motivation was, uh, but it certainly doesn't square with how people are now treating, you know, individual behaviour within the community and people really are quite happy and quite willing to assign blame and to imply intentional transmission when it comes to people who are, you know, for example, going out among the community without a very good reason. You know, potentially what people should really be reflecting on is the conclusions they come to 
uh, rather than simply the language they use. And, but there's a connection between that, of course. So if you come to a certain conclusion, um, you know, when it comes to language, one of the things we need to think about is, you know, which words do we choose? Um, how do we frame things when we already have decided what we want to say? But of course, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a more basic question, which is, should I say that at all? And I think that the questions that, that you're raising there are really sort of at that early stage in the thought process in a sense, which is to, you know, look, I've come to a conclusion about what's happening here. But before I proceed and sort of open my mouth, let me just pause for a second, think about, well, could there be an alternative explanation for this? Um, you know, there's a sort of, of course, a kind of two-step stage here. It's, it's coming to the decision about what you think is the appropriate thing to say and then thinking, well, okay, what's the right way to frame that? And on another side of this, we're talking a lot about a new normal. What are the implications of this? Are we setting to normalise situations that are just actually not normal? So the new normal is an interesting phrase and it's being used quite a lot, uh, as is the word normalise. So that term, you know, to normalise something, it's often used in a context where people are saying, well, you know, here's this behaviour, here's this phenomenon that is very bad and that should be responded to. So I don't know, for example, certain kinds of racist behaviour uh, is bad, it should not occur, um, but at certain times in history or at certain in certain contexts, we might argue, oh, look, you know, this type of behaviour is being normalised by X, Y or Z. And what that really means, it comes down to the basic concept of social norms, which is to say, um, you know, when it, society is basically governed by rules and language is exactly the same, it's governed by rules, certain ways of acting, certain ways of speaking, um, are normal in the specific sense that when you act in those ways and when you speak in those ways, people are not surprised by those ways of acting and speaking. And they're not disposed to sanction you for those ways of acting or speaking. And when you depart from those, so for example, uh, you know, when you produce racist uh, remarks or, or actions, uh, you know, in a certain context, then that will surprise people or people will be disposed to sanction them. So when people talk about normalisation, then they're really saying that those responses of sort of being surprised or or being disposed to sanction are suddenly starting to kind of go away. So in the context of, you know, everything around living with COVID-19 going around the world, um, you know, before saying anything at all about language, we're, we're talking often when we talk about the new normal, we're talking about all of the behaviour that we're engaging in in everyday life. So things like wearing a mask, taking you know a few steps back from people walking across the road when they come near us, um, you know all these kinds of behaviours which feel really weird to us. So when we say this is the new normal, I mean it's definitely not yet the new normal exactly because everyone is constantly uh, talking about it. And this is the whole essence of norms is that you don't talk about them. They just go under the radar in a sense, right? Um, So at the moment, we're all focused on the weirdness of our current behaviours. We're focused on the fact that we don't see people face to face and and we do all the things I I just talked about. It really will be the new normal when people stop saying this is the new normal. 
it really will be the new normal when people are not at all weirded out by the fact that people are standing three steps back from them instead of, you know, at a normal proximity. It really will be the new normal when people don't even think twice when everyone on the bus is wearing a mask. Uh, so that's the nature of social norms. And it's, it's exactly the same with language. Um, the kinds of uh, terms or terminology that now is remarkable and that people are sort of writing about on Twitter and that kind of thing, the day when we stop writing about them and stop remarking on them but continue using them, that's when we'll have to say they're not. So going back to where you started, with being mindful about what you're saying and the information that we're consuming, do you have any strategies that we can apply to counter misinformation and to check the facts? Well, I'd say that fact-checking, you know, is crucial, uh, but fact-checking as a concept is very narrow in some sense it's often associated with you know the media checking whether a statement that somebody made at a press conference was correct um you know or something that was published in an article was correct the thing that i think people really should be thinking about is their own reactions to what they're seeing and reading and not jumping to a conclusion not rushing to come to a decision not letting themselves immediately decide what they think is true or false but rather to sort of hover over those words for a bit take some distance from those words for a bit and look for other sources of information think about where is this information coming from what are the motivations of the person passing this information to me Um, what can i do with it Uh, who might benefit from what i want to do with it you know there's a lot of questions that are important and i think you know, a term that, I, that I'm coming to like is, it's, is a term um, that the cognitive scientist Hugo Mercier uses, which is open vigilance in cognition. And he, he basically argues that, you know, the human capacity to consume information is a bit like, you know, our capacity to consume food. We're omnivores. We eat all sorts of different kinds of things. So we need to be open to the possibility of eating different kinds of things, but we also need to be vigilant. You know, this thing might be poisonous. This thing um, might harm me in some way. So people have to balance. It's just the same with information. We need to balance the fact that we, you know, are able to consume information from a very wide variety of sources and in a very wide, you know, number of different forms. We've got to balance that with the potential harms um, of, of just taking that information at face value. So getting that balance right and practicing what I would like to call cognitive literacy and really sort of think about, well, how is my, you know, how is my brain working here? Let me just step back and think about how it's working before jumping forward and doing something with this information. That's an excellent way to end. Thanks, Nick. No problem. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.